Welcome to Transfusion's monthly podcast. I am your host, Yara Park. In today's episode, we will be speaking with Dr. Shannon Kelly from Vitalent Research Institute and Dr. Michael DeBond from Vanderbilt University Medical Center, who will be discussing their recent work, Automated Exchange Compared to Manual and Simple Blood Transfusion Attenuates Rise in Ferritin Level After One Year of Regular Transfusion Therapy in Chronically Transfused Children with Sickle Cell Disease. Welcome, Dr. Kelly and Dr. Debon. Thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Kelly, would you please introduce yourself? Of course. Thank you for having me today. My name is Shannon Kelly. Um, I am an assistant clinical investigator at Vitalant Research in San Francisco, and I'm also the director of pediatric apheresis at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital, Oakland. Thank you. Dr. Debon, could you please introduce yourself as well? Yes, my name is Michael Debon. I am the director of the Vanderbilt Meharry Sickle Cell Disease Center of Excellence. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you both for being here. We're excited to discuss your article. So this article was actually an ancillary study to the SIT study, or the Silent Cerebral Infarct Multicenter Clinical Trial. Dr. Debon, you were the lead author on the SIT trial. Can you summarize the SIT trial and its findings for us and maybe tell us how that led to this secondary study? Yes, I will summarize a decade worth of the trial, which is how long it took us to conduct the trial, and hopefully less than a minute, uh, and how we got to this ancillary study. <clears throat> so uh, children with sickle cell anemia, hemoglobin SS, and S thousand zero have a high uh, prevalence of silent cerebral infarcts. About 39% would develop a silent cerebral infarct before their 18th birthday. When I first started uh, pursuing the question of the clinical relevance of silent cerebral infarcts, uh, MRI technology was uh, just had just been introduced. Uh, terminology had been used to describe these infarcts as artifacts, and literally it took me about a decade to prove uh, to my peers in a uh, rigorous fashion that silent cerebral infarcts were not artifact but real, had an impact on the cognitive impairment of children with sickle cell anemia. And with collaborative efforts with peers, we were able to show that once you had a silent cerebral infarct, uh, you were at risk for overt strokes and future silent cerebral infarcts. So once we had done that preliminary work, then the question is, could we intervene? And so the intervention um, at the time um, in the late uh, 90s, early 2000, uh, was um, blood transfusion therapy. And so we wanted to um, introduce a randomized controlled trial after we completed a feasibility trial uh, to demonstrate that blood transfusion therapy would uh, significantly decrease the rate of progression or infarct recurrence, either a vert stroke or silent cerebral infarct in children uh, who had pre-existing silent cerebral infarcts. So this was an international trial, uh, multi-center uh, with uh, over 25 sites. Uh, children were... Uh, Elected, uh, randomly allocated to receive either transfusions uh, to keep their hemoglobin S levels less than 30% or to keep their baseline heme and to keep their baseline hemoglobin, very important, uh, to keep their uh, hemoglobin above nine grams per deciliter. For those who are in transfusion medicine, oftentimes you are, uh, know that when you transfuse an individual with sickle cell disease, that after the phoresis, you may actually have a hemoglobin in less, that is less than nine. This is far less than optimal uh, for a primary or secondary stroke prevention, particularly secondary stroke prevention. So we wanted to pay close attention to keeping the hemoglobin above nine grams per deciliter to um, ensure oxygen, adequate oxygen delivery to, to the brain. 
So we completed the trial uh, over the course of a, a decade, as I mentioned, and in that process, uh, we recognized early on, in fact, even before we started the trial, that one of the challenges uh, when you go across multiple sites, in, which includes sites in Europe and, and Canada and North America, is the range of transfusion practices. And so we made a, a decision early on that the optimal strategy for transfusing patients was pharesis. And uh, this was a, a challenge because many sites had never introduced pharesis. They were still using simple transfusion. So we had to come up with a strategy to introduce uh, pharesis. And then the second strategy was red blood cell manual exchange. And the third and the least uh, preferred was simple transfusions. And so um, we put this in our manual of operation. We put these procedures in our manual of operations. And we wanted to test a hypothesis after the completion of the trial that it was better to perform uh, red blood cell pharesis than to perform mod modified exchange or simple transfusions because there was really limited data in the literature at the time to, to really uh, support the use of the automated um, red blood cell exchange over uh, modified exchange. So that's the basis for this protocol or for this actual manuscript and, uh, and the data had been sitting around for some time um, waiting to be analyzed. So you mentioned that it took about 10 years to complete the SITS trial. So in general, what are the unique barriers to conducting a randomized controlled trial in a sickle cell disease patient population? When you devote a decade of your life to a project, you, you begin to understand the nuances that are not in the public domain. And uh, the first is that the backbone of any clinical trial in children is, in fact, the research staff. And those are the individuals who interact with the families directly. They're the ones who schedule the research visits. They're the ones who uh, tell the families about the trial. They're the ones who the families talk to when the physician walks out the door. And then they say, is this trial really okay? Would you really do this trial? Would you really go through this? And, uh, and so I took this, knowing this going in, I took the strategy that, uh, which I have not seen replicated, but was the first official meeting of the trial was an invitation for all the coordinators to come to our medical center and for us to explain the trial to them and for them to tell us feedback about what would work and what would not work. So this was actually quite uh, backwards compared to what many of my uh, colleagues who are investigators across the uh, globe. They wanted to come. They were like, why would you invite someone who is my research coordinator to talk about the trial and not invite me? So probably about a fourth of the, court of the uh, PI showed up with the coordinators and we, we hosted them and treated them like royalty. Uh, because really listening to their viewpoints about the protocol that had been written, uh, what were the holes in the protocol, uh, how were we to support the families, uh, was, was mission critical for us to move forward. So that was the first, um, uh, if you will, lesson. The, the, the second one was that um, I did a focus groups with families in St. Louis. I was at Washington University School of Medicine at St. Louis Children's Hospital. And... I wanted to use the right language to introduce the trial. 
And it turns out that um, the focus groups uh, came back with information that I was completely oblivious to. And the, the first point was that we should not use the term trial when introducing the SIT trial, that this was in fact an offensive uh, uh, word uh, for people in the African-American community. It, it conjured up a, a image of a judicial system. So we changed it to the SIT study, although officially it's a SIT trial, and we had brochures and we had posters and we had a campaign to educate families about the importance of knowing the child's status in terms of whether they had a silent infarct. And uh, we emphasized the importance of research in the community to advance the care for children with sickle cell disease. And then it's this, this was a multidisciplinary trial. We had to include neurologists from every site. We had to include neuroradiologists. We had to have a neuroradiology uh, adjudication committee. We had a neurology adjudication committee. And so I was uh, quick to identify people who had a passion about the health of children with sickle cell disease. And we all agreed to work as a team. And so that's basically the, the sauce that allowed us to get through this process over a course of a decade. What are some of the landmark trials that guide the current standard of care for our sickle cell disease population? The STOP trial was the trial that randomized children with sickle cell disease who we knew were at the highest risk of having a stroke because they had been identified so by having an abnormal transcranial Doppler that measures velocity in key cerebral um, arteries. And previous work had shown that an abnormal transcranial Doppler or TCD was associated with a significantly um, increased risk of stroke in these children. So with that tool to identify the high-risk children, the, the next question was, can we prevent a stroke in these children? And it had been known for years that regular transfusion therapy could prevent a second stroke after a first stroke. So now the question was primary prevention. Can we prevent that first stroke? which by the way, occurs at the peak incidence at this age group in a young childhood, you know, age two to three up to age six to seven, peak cognitive and brain development. So strokes in this age can just be devastating for our children with sickle cell. And so preventing them is just critical to taking care of these children. So with the STOP trial, children were randomized to regular blood transfusions um, or standard care. And actually, you know, kind of, rare, I would think, Dr. Javon can correct me, but relatively rare in trials in general, and especially sickle cell. The results were, were so clear that after, I think, about just over two years, the, the, sh the trial was shut down and all the children with abnormal TCDs were offered regular transfusion therapy because there was a 92% reduction in stroke risk in those children that were receiving transfusions um, every month. And so this really became the standard of care to screen children with TCDs and identify those children at high risk and get them on transfusion therapy. So I would say that kind of the next landmark trial after that, as a follow-up to that, you know, then the question becomes, do you start these children on regular blood transfusion therapy every month? When is it safe to stop? And that was really an unanswered question that was tried to answer in STOP2. So in STOP2, the follow-up trial, they took children that had already been transfused for, um, I believe, about three years on average. They, at that point, their TCDs had reverted to normal. They actually only took children that had normal MRIs and normal MRAs. 
So no evidence of what Dr. Devon was previously describing in terms of silent infarcts, nor any um, significant cerebral vascular disease. And that subset of patients, they then randomized to either continue transfusions or stop um, and just be treated with standard care. And that trial was also shut down um, after a few years because those that were randomized to stop transfusions um, had a high number of events in terms of reversion to abnormal TCV and strokes. So that trial couldn't really define an endpoint. And so in terms of the limitations of these trials, that although they've had a significant impact, I think on increasing transfusion therapy in our sickle cell population, particular our pediatric sickle cell population, I think these two trials have, in addition to the SIT trial that Dr. Devon led, you know, kind of these three landmark trials are the ones that have increased our blood utilization in terms of chronic transfusion therapy. But the, the remaining question in terms of limitations that are unanswered, I think, is, is there a kind of safe point in time when we could stop? We don't really know that. So I think for most of us that are pediatric hematologists, once a child is committed to regular transfusion therapy for strokes, um, it is indefinite. Um, we may not have time to get into the nuances of who might be eligible for switching to hydroxyurea. So there, there is a subset that, that may be eligible for that. But taking that little piece of data out of the question, a lot of those children do continue on transfusion therapy indefinitely. So that's one remaining question that hasn't really been answered at this point. And then I'd say in terms of the other um, drawbacks and relevant to the conversation today, you know, the, those trials, the original STOP trial used hemoglobin S less than 30% as kind of the target of transfusion therapy. And so now we have that as our established kind of gold standard baseline to say, if we're trying to prevent a stroke, this should be our goal is to achieve this target hemoglobin S less than 30%. Um, and I think it's um, a remaining question. There's been a couple of small trials that were retrospective single institution trials that have published trying to relax that um, hemoglobin S to 50% um, in a relatively small number of patients and didn't see any of significant poor outcomes or strokes in those patients, but it's it's small numbers, it's single institution. And so I think a lot of people still don't feel comfortable relaxing that hemoglobin S to 50%. One of the things that came up in reading this article is that each site seemed to do the red blood cell exchange by their local uh, protocols. Does that affect the findings of the study in any way? And do you think that there are parameters that should be recommended across the board as standard of care for automated red blood cell exchange? Well, that's something that I definitely would love to work towards. I think that it's so true. I talk to apheresis directors and hematologists that take care of chronically transfused patients at different centers. And um, for sure, there is a huge wide variation in practice. Um, things may have been a little bit tighter in this particular trial, but in clinical practice, I think that there's huge variation. I love uh, Shannon's answer. I, I, I would say that the, the challenge, quite frankly, is the absence of science to drive, the, uh, to drive best practices. And we would love to know, uh, quite frankly, if I perform a simple transfusion in a patient for six months versus a modified exchange uh, versus automated, uh, what does that do 
regarding the immune response. What does that do to the uh, inflammatory status of the patient? Uh, how might that improve clinical outcome um, when you talk about injury of the brain uh, related to ischemia? And then, uh, ironically, there was just recent literature suggesting that in adults who have ischemic injury, transfusions given uh, in a non-randomized uh, fashion may improve clinical outcomes of adults with, who have strokes after receiving TPA. And again, what's the biology there? And, and how might transfusion medicine scientists uh, improve uh, our knowledge of the pathogenesis so that we can more refine our approach to managing our patients and then have even better evidence to suggest that in addition to the automated uh, uh, exchange being a better strategy for decreasing uh, iron stores, it, it also uh, improves uh, the uh, clinical outcome. Were you surprised by how high the rise in ferritin was in the manual exchange group as compared to the automated exchange group. I found that a little bit surprising when I was reading this study. I mean, I think there's other studies that have demonstrated that um, automated exchange is, is more efficient, right? We can accomplish a larger exchange with automated than we can with manual. So um, I think in terms of what I see in my clinical practice is that I do tend to see less iron accumulation in the my automated exchange patients compared to my manual. I think it really comes down to the patient's pre-transfusion hemoglobin and post-transfusion hemoglobin or, you know, pre and post hematocrit, however you want to think about it, um, in terms of how much we can really limit the iron loading. Um, but I would say I wasn't completely surprised um, by that in this particular study. I feel like at least in my clinical practice, it's similar to what I see. And, and I would just add that uh, one of our biggest challenges in this field as the hematologist is when we work with the transfusion medicine experts is that uh, there's always this claim or challenge of where's the data? And so we, we were really compelled to even initiate this study over a decade ago and collect this information in a systematic way, recognizing the unique attributes of, of the first year of routine transfusions across uh, three different methods so that we could actually collect the data in a prospective systematic way and actually uh, ascertain what the rate of rise was or expected rate of rise uh, modeled would be uh, with these three strategies of transfusions. And, and I think uh, the other component of this, which I was unaware of uh, going in and Shannon uh, educated me, was that uh, when you have a large number of patients with a high baseline he uh, hemoglobin before they start phoresis, they will actually become uh, iron deficient. And uh, one of the nuances of the study, uh, which is illustrated by uh, one of the figures, is that when you take a look specifically at the ferritin level in the uh, regular uh, uh, automated exchange group, you can see the ferritin level actually dropping uh, over a course of a year. And uh, this is important for two reasons. One is that this is an unexpected complication. And you, would, uh, you, you would dare say if this was mentioned on a board question 
uh, for pathology boards or hematology boards, 99% of the people would get this question wrong, uh, which is that phoresis can result in, or uh, automated exchange can result in uh, eye deficiency anemia in uh, children and adults with sickle cell disease. That's the first point. The second point, which I think is even uh, as critical, is that the cost of treatment for this population, which we did not introduce into our study, is heavily weighted toward the cost of arnculation. So if one is putting together cost-effective analysis, which we are putting together uh, for this uh, trial, what you will actually see is that uh, one of the major drivers of cost is outpatient chelation or chelation at home. And these data clearly show that in a subgroup of patients who receive automated exchange, that there may be no need for chelation. In fact, you may have to actually treat them uh, with iron supplementation. So one final question. Where do you go from here? You have all this data from the SIT study. Are there future studies headed our way? Well, for me personally, what, what I'm hoping will be published soon is something that I've been working on um, is, is what I referred to earlier in terms of, okay, if we can limit iron loading, what about other outcomes? Um, can we control hemoglobin S differently? Do we see less progression of infarcts on MRI and some of the other clinical outcomes, pain, acute chest, hospitalizations, um, understanding those differences between the transfusion strategies? Um, and, and then one last thing for, for me, and then I'll turn it over to Dr. Devon, um, is, you know, we didn't really touch on this, but the, the one thing that really limits our ability to provide automated red cell exchange um, to our sickle cell patients is vascular access. Um, so having two peripheral IVs or a central line um, is what's required, and that is difficult in some of our patients. So maximizing um, therapies and, and thinking maybe now about our chronically transfused sickle cell population, almost like the dialysis population, where chronic learned long-term vascular access is a part of those conversations and that medical management of that population is, um, is something that I'd like to, to focus on and collaborate with others so that that doesn't remain a barrier to providing this therapy to our patients. And I, I would say that I agree with all of those uh, opportunities uh, that are bright for the future. I would highlight the importance of training programs specifically in this space. It, it's clear that we're just on the, uh, the brink of understanding the biology in transfusion medicine that may uh, attenuate uh, injury to the brain, and not only individuals with sickle cell disease, but individuals who uh, don't have sickle cell disease with ischemic injury. And so the opportunity to educate uh, trainees in this space and to provide them with rigorous opportunities for future research endeavors that are hypothesis-driven, I think is critical. And then uh, let's not forget that 5% of the children born with sickle cell disease live in a high-income country namely Europe and North America, that have easy access, uh, although not, maybe not uniform access, but easy access, uh, depending on the location, uh, to uh, automated uh, red blood cell exchange. But the 95% of the children who are born with this disease in Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, India, and parts of uh, South America and the Caribbean do not have access uh, to this uh, technology. And so strategies that will uh, 
provide near uh, benefit um, in terms of quantifying the benefit of transfusions for primary and secondary stroke prevention or augmenting the benefit so that less blood is used perhaps with a hydroxyurea therapy in combination with transfusions uh, may uh, should be on the horizon and we were compelled in, in brief to consider this strategy of hydroxyurea and blood transfusion therapy in children uh, as a primary stroke prevention because our blood supply dried up in, in Tennessee and we were no longer able to give automated exchange transfusions and had to uh, revert to simple transfusions. And there were points where we were told we could not actually transfuse at all, in which case the hydroxyurea that we gave as um, concomitantly to the transfusions served as a bridge uh, for this window where there was no ability for the family to come in because there was no blood available. So I think the future is bright for transfusion medicine and sickle cell disease. Uh, we just need uh, the next generation to be introduced to the uh, rigors of uh, formal uh, clinical research uh, coupled with good mentorship and funding. Thank you to Dr. Kelly and Dr. Debon for joining us for a great discussion of their upcoming paper in transfusion. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. See you next time.